Hello everybody, welcome to the Naked Security Podcast. I'm Paul Ducklin. You'll have heard me before, but not on this side of the mic. I'm hosting today because Doug is on vacation, and I'm joined in the guest chair by my old chum and colleague, Chester Wisniewski. Hello, Chet. Hey, Doc. It's good to be on the Naked Security Podcast instead of our little special episodes that we do sometimes. It's good to be on the big show. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like the Chet Chat all over again, with one tiny difference just before we start. And this week in tech history, in August 1991, 30 years ago, according to the CERN website, the WWW World Wide Web Project files were available for the first time on the net, posted, and here's another trip down memory lane, Chester, posted on the 6th, the 16th and the 19th of August on alt.hypertext, on comp sys.next, who remembers them, on the 20th of August, and on comp.text.sgml and comp.mail.multimedia on the 22nd of August. And what do you say to that, my friend? Well, you know, I, I was thinking back and I, I did use the original Mosaic browser back uh, close to those days, not quite as uh, early as uh, the, the 30 years ago anniversary, but I have to say, I don't know that after I installed Mosaic that I ever used Archie or Veronica again. Yeah, same for me. Or, or Gopher, <laughs> if you remember that. To, the, to anyone back then who said, it's a great idea, but it'll never catch on. Well, yeah, should have bought Apple stock at about the same time, eh? <laughs> or maybe next. <laughs> yes, isn't that amazing? I believe that Tim Berners-Lee, Sir Tim's, Original Next is uh, a museum piece now, with all its original stickers on. Don't know whether it still works. I was very jealous of the Next computers back then. They were just so sexy compared to everything else, and I, I never was able to uh, to acquire one for personal usage. Justify the $6,000 entry-level price back then. Well, I did have an SGIO2 on my desk for a while, so I can't complain. You certainly can't. But yeah, the Next was something else. Uh, I guess we should move on from 30 years ago this week to last week this week. And our first news item of the week, Chester, is an article that you can find on nakedsecurity.sophos.com with the title, Copyright Scammers Turn to Phone Numbers Instead of Web Links. And this is very much the same sort of thing that the bazaar loader or the bazaar caller ransomware guys have been doing. Given that everyone's worried about clicking links these days, these scammers are going, there's a copyright infringement notice against you. Oh dear, what to do? There's a toll-free number. Why don't you call that? What could possibly go wrong? So you've looked into particularly the bizarre call a lot, operating a similar kind of scam, Chester. What can go wrong if you call that number? Because you're not putting your computer in harm's way. Well, you might be. You're just not necessarily doing it until you make the call. I mean. You know, the people on the other end of the line clearly uh, are taking the place of what we would normally call a call to action. Yes. When we do, you know, if you do email filtering software, usually what we're looking for is the thing that the criminal wants you to do so that we can super inspect that thing to determine whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And that call to action normally might be a link to a web page, 
or an attachment that's attached where they want you to enable a macro or a, a poison booby trap PDF or something like this. And the great thing for our threat researchers, Chester, is when there is one of those things, you can go and investigate the website or dig into the attachment. And there are typically more clues in there that give you more information. So it's kind of the starting point of a of a big and interesting puzzle, isn't it? But with a phone number, you haven't got really got much to go on, have you? No, and that's what's interesting, right? Because obviously we're always interested in that call to action because all the rest of the content doesn't really matter. In the end, they need you to do something or no harm will come to you. And so you need to be expecting if you were to call this phone number that they're just going to tell you what harmful thing to do rather than <laughs> having you do it in the email client or in your web browser. I guess if you call up and there's someone at the other end said, oh yeah, I know you're worried, I know you're worried, let me help you, then very different from clicking a link in an email that everyone knows could have come from anywhere and probably did, even though the phone number arrived in exactly the same circumstances. Yeah, and these guys are pretty clever, right? I mean, at least in one case that we investigated, uh, they talk you through going to a website that appears to be related to the scam. And they, uh, um, in this case, it was just cancel a subscription. So they ask you to open up a file and fill out a form in order to formally request they cancel the subscription. And of course, that form has a macro. And if, if you're, if you're, oh, what do I do? What do I do? And they help you through that, right? Yeah, exactly. If you're, if your Excel is prompting you going, Hey, this wants to run active code, danger, danger. They're like, Oh yeah, there's a warning. Don't worry about that. We, we can't process your cancellation. If we, uh, if you don't enable that, that's just a warning message. Don't worry about it. And they often pitch that kind of thing as if it were a security benefit, don't they? Sort of saying, yeah, well, we don't want just anybody reading the documents. It's like to keep it safe, to keep it secure. You know, something that sets your mind at rest. Yeah, and I, I guess what people shouldn't what people shouldn't get too hung up on is what the lure is, and just remember that this kind of lure exists, rather than worrying about is it a subscription or in the case the the article you have here on Naked Security is about these copyright takedown notices. Well, tomorrow it's going to be something else, right? Like it's going to be your kids can't go back to school in two weeks because you need to fill out a permission form, or there's always going to be another lure. What you need to remember is. That if something's coming into your email asking you to call a number and that number's in the email itself, just like anything else, it shouldn't be trusted when it's not, you know, able to be verified, right? So even if you are concerned that it really is Amazon about a subscription or it really is uh, a copyright notice from Instagram, then you should go to Instagram and check and see on your Instagram if there's really a notice there or not. Don't go to the link. Don't go to the phone number. And if you're worried about calling to cancel any of these things, if it's from a dot-com company, you're never going to get a human being. So if you get a human being right away, you know it's a scam. <laughs> oh, Chester, you're so cynical. Uh, <laughs> but there's a, there's a bit of truth in that, I guess. As you say, today it's a copyright scam. Yesterday it was the bizarre load of ransomware crew. Tomorrow it might be a home delivery that went missing. The day after that it could be we're unable to send the vaccination certificate to your phone or whatever. So uh, be careful out there, folks. Uh, I was just going to remind people that, the unfortunately, email in most cases is rarely verifiable in any meaningful way. So uh, you shouldn't treat it, treat it any different than you would treat uh, a poster attached to a light pole outside. You don't know who wrote that poster. You don't know who may be behind it. And if you approach email with that similar kind of public skepticism, you'll be treated well. And unfortunately, 
it's exactly the same for telephone numbers, isn't it, Chester? I think people have an idea with a lot of these scams, the phone number will be local or it'll be a a free caller, toll-free number in their country. And I'll think, who could possibly afford to set up a a toll-free number for nothing? And the answer is, these services are really cheap these days, and the numbers are always local. Absolutely. I mean, I I have a voice over IP number attached to a line that's costing me less than one penny per minute uh, to receive toll-free calls from people. So this is not something that has a cost barrier. Not to mention, we are talking about criminals who have lots of stolen money in Bitcoin and other things that maybe we'll talk a bit more later in the podcast. But like money's not really a barrier to this for them to begin with, especially if they're using stolen credit cards or other things to pay for the services they're using. And uh, the, the, in fact, the, the subscription scam one I received of these that were referred to an Amazon subscription that I was being charged for had a 206 area code phone number. So for the Amer- Americans listening, we'll know that 206 is the uh, area code in the United States for Seattle, Washington. So it's like, oh, it's from Amazon. It says I need to call this number in Seattle. That feels really natural, right? It, it, it makes sense in your head that, of course, it would be a phone number in Seattle they want me to call. But of course, acquiring a phone number in Seattle takes pennies and can be done instantly. Right. So be careful out there, folks. Uh, thank you, Chester, for your advice. Uh, let's move on to our next story, which is one that I published today. The story on naked security is entitled Video Surveillance Network Hacked by Researchers to Hijack Footage. The quick version is that this is research from a company called Mandiant, who were looking at devices that connect to a network called Calais, which has, that's K-A-L-A-Y, not Calais as in the, the famous port in France. I hadn't heard of them before, but they have some 80 million devices already connected to the network. And unfortunately, what Mandiant discovered is that you can pretend if you know the unique identifier, which is kind of like a, a MAC address, though a bit more secure, for a device that's already on the network. You can re-register it using only that unique identifier. You don't need to know the password. And it kind of does a password reset, tells you the new password. And then when you connect subsequently, you can use that new password that you re-registered And when it finds the device, it will find the old device that's already on the network. And bingo, you're watching somebody else's webcam. Yeah, to me, it was interesting technically, right? I mean, it almost feels like a combination of two other kinds of things that we see quite often, which is a direct object reference, which is the idea that, you know, you go to your retirement website to log in and check your retirement savings and you see your account number in the URL and you just increase it by one and suddenly you see somebody else's retirement savings. And it sounds like one of these kind of very basic security mistakes to make where simply knowing an account number or an ID number in this case of a device is enough for you to ultimately hijack it and tamper with it. But it's not that simple either, right? Because you talk about how it sort of like establishes a new set of credentials. So it's almost like having cookie theft combined with direct object reference, right? Like you're pretty much getting um, a a, a cookie-like token allowing you to access that camera or that smart lock, right? Is that that a correct uh, understanding? It's like being able to reset somebody's email password if you just happen to know something that you probably don't know but might, like their driving license number or their physical address. It's not an attack that you could use against everybody immediately. But it's certainly an attack that's trivial to use against somebody, possibly quite a lot of somebodies. 
because you've got this in this case it's a 20 byte unique identifier for the device but it's not meant to be a secret it's not publicized but it's not the password of the device so yeah it's a bit of a security blunder to say the least absolutely and i i think a good thing to point out is because it's getting issued that new authentication token that grants access to that feed does that disable the old one like would i notice that suddenly my smart cameras are no longer accessible on my app on my phone because somebody's hijacked and replaced that authentication token with a new one, right? So somebody else is now observing my baby monitor, but I now no longer can see it because my token is invalid or would both tokens work? I actually don't know the answer to that question, Chester. Unfortunately, I don't have one of these devices, so there are a whole lot of things that I can't answer on that. So I don't know whether you would actually get a post hoc warning, like that you suddenly wouldn't be able to access and you'd have to go in and do a reset yourself or whether the system would actually go, oh, well, obviously you just want to add a new user, which would obviously be much worse. But even if it does kick you out and let the new guy in, it's still a significant risk. Yeah, I think the people, I guess if I had one of these things and I suddenly was not able to access it, I would be very suspicious that it probably wasn't patched by the vendor and maybe somebody's hijacked it. We don't know if that would happen, but certainly if it did happen, I would be very suspicious that, hey, somebody's messing with my account or trying to access my device. And I mean, that's one of the problems here. We, we talked before the podcast about uh, what I was calling a cybersecurity uh, accepted best practices or um, some equivalent of what in business is often called uh, generally acceptable accounting principles, right? Like there's a standard for how people um, talk about numbers so that financial numbers can't be distorted and manipulated. Exactly. And we need a similar thing on the cyber side of things. There's obviously some movement that the, the United States government uh, has been pushing for what's known as a software bill of materials, which is a list of all the things or components or technologies uh, used to produce a product, especially for things like IoT products. And that's kind of an interesting idea. So basically, that's a, this is what's in it. And therefore, that gives you a good idea of what might have a bug, what might need fixing what moving parts might interfere with each other, all of that stuff. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. And, and anything that's reliant on in its supply chain, right? So the idea here is this, my understanding is this uh, Calais company provides this as a service to IoT device manufacturers. So the problem here is you go, okay, I want to buy this webcam. And the webcam says it's from brand ChatNet. It's a ChatNet brand webcam. Well, hey, ChatNet, what's in your webcam? And it's like, oh, we don't know what's in our webcam because actually it's some third party that provides the cloud backend, right? So, you know, I think they're looking to start uh, unraveling some of these supply chains so you at least have some ideas of uh, what software is relied on. But I think in this kind of a bug case, Doc, I'm not even sure that's helpful. And that's really the problem for consumers. Well, I think actually it would be because in the advice that I gave in the article, I said, if you have a device that hooks up to this Calais network, then you need to check the software from the company that makes the Calais service. They're called ThruTech with a K. The current versions of their software development kit, which I think are versions 3.3 and 3.4, they don't have this bug. But there's almost no way of finding that because the average built down to a price IoT device goes out of its way to make it hard for you to download the firmware, imagining that that provides some kind of extra security through obscurity. So you can't even dump the firmware and go grepping through it for version number strings yourself, even if you want to. If you can't find a way to find the version number, you have to consult the vendor. And good luck with that. 
Well, Zach, precisely, I was going to say, we've talked on the podcast before about some IoT research I did about seven or eight years ago. And, you know, half of the companies who manufactured the devices were out of business before I was able to analyze them. (laughs) Oh, dear. What version number is your version zero? (sighs) If anybody needs some TCP brand light bulbs, uh, I'm your man. I have some TCP brand light bulbs. uh, which you'd think would be a lot more reliable than UDP brand light bulbs, but turns out not so much. The uh, the cloud service is not there to allow me to turn those light bulbs on anymore. <laughs> so they're actually unusable? Uh, no, they're stuck on at one tint level and intensity level and cannot be changed. Uh, they do turn on and off if you plug them into a, uh, a proper outlet. So whatever groovy color you were messing with when you finished your research light puce slash purple that's where they are now forever (laughs) that that's all she wrote uh chester all i can say is don't let your tastes change my friend (laughs) my my living room is perpetually in a purple haze chester from the internet of things which never ceases to surprise us to another part of uh cybersecurity that never ceases to surprise us either. Can you guess where this is going? Well, the title of the article on Naked Security Chester, and then I'll hand straight over to you, is Hacker Grabs $600 million in Crypto Cash from Blockchain Company Poly Networks. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there was a bug in this software for this uh, poly networks uh, that allowed the attacker to simply ask nicely (laughs) and take $600 million. I mean, I can't even imagine approaching a bank vault and asking nicely if I could just please come in and take uh, all of the gold. But it sounds like that's almost how this played out. I'm not sure there's anything smart about using smart contracts, but perhaps we'll leave that for another podcast episode. Might be a long one. Yeah. Or a very, very short one. <laughs> <laughs> but I, the, the fact that there's a Shiba Inu coin alone tells us how far down the rabbit hole we've gone where we have tokens imitating coins imitating tokens. Shiba Inu is the type of dog that was popularized by the Dogecoin, which was a kind of comedy crypto coin that was meant to be used for tiny values. Like You, you just use it to tip people in a coffee shop and sends tiny gifts to your friends, right? It was sort of like almost satire coin. And then Shiba Inu is the satire coin of the satire coin. And yet, apparently you can have millions of dollars worth of them. And this guy ran off with some of them. But $600 million in all. And then he left a whole load of text messages in some of the Ethereum transactions he did. And after a while, he's saying, fail to contact the poly, which I presume means poly networks. I, then I need a secure multi-sig wallet from you because they'd got into high dudgeon, even if they're the most careless programmers in the world and they should have seen this coming. He did steal the money from them. Um, and they said, give it back. And perhaps to everyone's surprise, he did and said, I only stole your bicycle because you're using a lock that lots of people know how to pick. And in particular, I do. So I thought I'd take it and put it in my own shed for safekeeping. And now you've asked nicely, I'll, I'll, I'll give it you back piece by piece. And over several days, he transferred back, if not all, a very large percentage of that money. Including 260 billion Shiba Inu coins. 
still two million US dollars, apparently, if you could cash them out. So I counted up the, the refunds he gave them added up to 569. But curiously, maybe not curiously, Poly Networks have decided now they got the money back and they must be breathing a giant sigh of relief and, relief and they've fixed the bug. They're treating him with kid gloves, aren't they? They're obeisantly calling him Mr. White Hat and they've invited him, I believe, to be their chief security advisor. And they're saying he can have 500,000 of the money and they don't care what he does with it. So how about that? That's a big bounty with a big size. Yeah, that's, um, I, I, gosh, the feelings on this. Um, the, the idea that, I mean, to me to think that you have $600 million in cryptocurrency in a what's kind of referred to as a, uh, a hot state, right? When we talk about cryptocurrencies, wallets can be hot or cold. I mean, a hot wallet in essence means the computer that has the secret that is the value of that crypto coin or token is on the computer. So it can be stolen or touched or read. Whereas a cold wallet maybe would be the equivalent of writing those bytes out to a thumb drive and locking that into a safe, perhaps, or maybe printing it on a piece of paper and locking it in, in a safe. And the idea that you would ever need to have 600 million of coins um, liquid, like readily available to be transferred at a moment's notice, um, doesn't seem that like bright to me because it's clear that these institutions are not in fact banks. And that's what people need to keep in mind. Banks are actually regulated. And at least in most countries uh, the, where our listeners are, uh, banks often have guarantees of a certain amount of savings from the government saying, you know, you are uh, here in Canada, for example, every one of my accounts is insured for 100,000 Canadian dollars uh, by the federal government. Meaning um, even if the bank fails, I'll at least have 100,000 of my money back if I have 100,000. And uh, backed by the government. So, so back to Polly, let's start by making sure that we shouldn't call them a bank because that's giving you a false impression of how these institutions operate. This is a private business that you voluntarily gave all your money to, and they promised you an imaginary token that may or may not be worth something that they might lose. I assume you'd be entitled to a civil lawsuit uh, against the people behind the organization or the organization itself if they were to lose your money. But of course, if, if it was stolen by cyber criminals, the likelihood is that organization's never going to be able to recover from a $600 million loss. And um, you're not going to be able to recover from your loss either. So to me, this feels like what was going on in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago for a lot of the folks that decided to participate in DEF CON and Black Hat, that you might stop off, stop off at the craps table and you might have a few hundred bucks in your pocket that you're willing to spend at that table to have some fun. And uh, that could result in you winning some money, but it's much more likely to result in you having a few hundred dollars less when you leave the casino. And my recommendation is very, very simply, never invest more than you can afford to lose. And I don't just mean that your investment might go down, that you might end up getting back dollar zero. And as you said, my second advice in that story, very simple. If you plan to buy cryptocurrency and hold on to it, then you need to understand how to own and operate, as you call it, a cold wallet. Whereas a hot wallet is like taking that billfold full of freshly withdrawn banknotes and handing it to your neighbour and saying, will you look after this until I need it? You might get it back, but you might not, for good reasons or for bad ones. 
Uh, absolutely. And I, I think that it, 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 some of these things are, are harder than they need to be. It's not uh, easy, but if you think about it similar to the way you might say air gap and network, that's in essence what you need to be doing with that cryptocurrency if you're collecting it, which is needs to somehow be dis- disconnected so nobody on the internet can monkey with it. And you know whether that's paper or a thumb drive or whatever mechanism it is you choose, the, the key is that it can't be remotely uh, disrupted and that you have control over the physical access to it is required in order for uh, it to be executed upon. Absolutely. So it's not just that you're not trusting the private keys to some third party in an online website so you can trade live. You're not even leaving it lying around on your computer where malware could snoop around and pick it up and run off with it. Because there's a lot of crypto wallet thieving malware out there these days, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, cookie theft and and Bitcoin and uh, Monero theft in particular is something that is a hallmark of information stealers these days. Used to be, it was you know, you got an info stealer, it dumped your passwords from Internet Explorer. Now it dumps your passwords from like 27 different browsers, and then it went and it sniffs around for crypto crypto wallets as well as cookies for important logins for uh, for for websites for code development things like GitHub and Slack, trying to find ways to impersonate you at your own organization to commit further crimes. So there's a lot at stake there. Wallets are high on the list of things that are often sought after. They're also really tiny. So the crooks don't even need a lot of time or bandwidth to be able to exfiltrate them. It's not like a ransomware crook in a giant company network trying to upload 50 terabytes of data so they can blackmail you with it. We might be looking at a few thousands of bytes at the most. I'm sorry, Duck, but as soon as you said that, my mind went to those researchers at Ben Gurion University. They're always doing some sideband attack on a processor uh, that they, you know, they varied the frequency in the <laughs> light bulbs to leak 11 bytes worth of data from the computer. And I'm just waiting for them to leak a Bitcoin wallet by, uh, you know, playing playing music uh, through the speakers or something. Or beaming a laser pointer through the window and measuring refraction off the screen or something like that. Yeah, those guys must have a lot of fun. Just to, I think we've given all the warnings we can about cryptocurrency investments, how to get into it, and how to hold the stuff safely if you want to have a go at it. That leaves me with just one thing. And given that Doug isn't here, and he normally conducts this, going to do this in a slightly unusual way. And the oh no of the week, I'm going to let you tell the oh no story so that it's Doug when he listens when he's back from vacation doing the oh no. So tell all of our listeners, Chester and Douglas, what you bought for yourself last December, I think. Yeah, I hate to do this to Doug while he's on vacation, but... uh... I think it was the second week of December, which maybe was the third week of Doug's whining on the podcast about not being able to get a PlayStation 5. And uh, I just went and clicked the button and I instantly got one. (laughs) And it arrived promptly? Uh, Yeah, it did arrive uh, promptly. In fact, I was quite surprised it was delivered on a a Saturday. I uh, uh, was quite, I didn't pay any extra for shipping or anything. But it it was just one of those moments where I'm like, well, if they're that hard to get, you know, maybe I should, uh, you know, I was kind of interested in one, but I wanted it more because I knew it was hard to find 
and that it was driving Doug crazy. And so uh, I, I went and got one and it's, it's pretty cool. You can come over and play anytime as uh, they, they've reopened the border from the United States to Canada now, Doug. So uh, you're, you're welcome to come up to Vancouver and pay us a visit and we can, we can play a little uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Unfortunately, he's on the wrong side of the continent. Like if he were just in Seattle, then it wouldn't be too bad. He could just drive up for the afternoon. Yeah, it's about 8,000 kilometers, I think. If he made you the right offer, Shiba Inu, would you, would you part with it? Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd think about it for the right uh, smart contract. And uh... <laughs> Well, I hope we don't have reason to regret that being the oh no, because it was an only yes for you. It's an oh no for Doug. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you very much, Chester, for stepping up at short notice to fill in for Doug. And as always, until next time, stay Stay secure. secure.